want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head out the back, your teacher will meet you. And before I get to the sermon, I just have two things I wanted to bring up. Um, first of all, you'll notice the banners are missing. That was not a direct result of the Sunday school on iconography. <laughs> it was the fact that you could not read the word rejoice because it blended right in with the background. So the uh, Friday ladies uh, um, craft group is going to see what they can do with that to make it a little bit more readable. Um, I kind of like the banners. I think it brings a little life to the front of the church. So that, that's the first one. And the second one is, uh, this is kind of important for our denomination. Um, I don't know if you know, but in June, we're going to have our uh, denominational meeting. The, the denomination gets together every other year. And um, I thought this was just another one of those you know, regular old meetings. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from the denomination saying that what they're going to do is that this denominational, this national conference, they're going to introduce a motion. And they're going to, this motion will be put out to amend the statement of faith. And then in two years for the next one, they will call for a vote on it. And the amendment that they're going to make to the statement of faith is they're going to take the word premillennial and replace it with glorious. And um, so if, if you understand what this means is premillennialism is a very defined understanding of end times, of when Jesus will return, he will stand upon this earth and physically reign for an extended period of time. Um, that was the defined statement of the, the Evangelical Free Church of America since they founded in 1950. Um, in 2006, when we redid the statement of faith, realigned it, tried to make it more gospel-centered, it didn't change any of the doctrine, but it moved it around a little bit. Uh, they took out from the statement of faith, they took out congregationalism. That is, the congregation is the final deciding authority in the church. And they tried to take out the premillennial statement. And the reason is not because those are not true or not, not held or, or, or wrong. It's simply that they don't belong in a statement of faith. And so what happened was they were able to get the congregationalism removed. But there was a, a, a significant portion of the church said, if you take out the premill, we're leaving. And so they backed off and left premill in. I personally didn't expect a motion to take premillennialism out of our confession, our statement of faith, for probably another 10 years. I thought that that generation is going to have to retire and, and move on. So I was really surprised to see that they're going to do this. So I, I'm going to try to be at the national conference this year and, uh, and see what happens. So I just want to explain my position on this. I'm in the process of being licensed right now by the Free Church. Uh, my paper's been submitted. I have uh, uh, a date set at the end of May to be examined. So I will sit before a board and be grilled by my previous pastor. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great time. I have to, to be ordained in the free church, I have to be premill at this moment. I have to have some form of premillennial views of the end times. And so my, my position is what's called historic premillennialism. Uh, early in the church, there was a version of premillennialism that they held to. Um, and so that's my position. My position is not changing because I think it's the best answer for a lot of the questions that, are, that surround the end times, even if they take that out. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, I was kind of ducking and covering. But we're going to remove that. And one of the benefits of that is um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I got my, uh, my MDiv, to teach there, you have to adhere to the statement of faith. And so it excludes some very good, very sound teachers because they're not premillennial. They may be what's called amillennial, which is a very popular uh, view these days as well. And so by taking that out, that will allow other professors to teach it at Trinity. 
But one of the other motions that they're making is something different with relationship to the school, which is if you teach at the school, you'll have to affirm the statement of faith every year. Right now, when you get hired, you have to affirm the statement of faith, and then they never ask again. So somebody's position could change, and they could still be there. So they're, in one sense, trying to tighten it up, and in another sense, open it up. Does that make sense? So um, I just wanted to share that with you. In my opinion, this is a right move. This is a good move. I didn't anticipate it this quick. So we'll see how it goes. Um, that's why it, I, I want to be at this, this national conference. I will definitely be at the next one because I want to be involved in that vote. So um, I just want to let you know how I'm representing you to the denomination. And I hope that makes sense. If you want to talk about it with me, talk with me after church, and I'll, I'll be glad to explain the intricacies of uh, historic pre-mill versus dispensational pre-mill versus all-mill versus post-mill if you're into all that. Everybody's like, what? Okay, <laughs> come back to me, come back. Let's, let's look at what God has to say in his word this morning now that we got that business out of the way. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we are, are grateful that you have given us your word, that you've, throughout the ages, inspired people to write exactly what it was that you once said. Throughout those ages, Lord, you preserved your word so that it would not be changed, it wouldn't be adulterated at all, and you've delivered it now to us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word that we would hear your voice. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you inspire your word again to us, show us again its authenticity, help us to see and understand and remember the truth of it. And uh, Lord, all, all of these things, all that you do in your word is intended to point us to Jesus Christ. And so that's our ultimate hope. Would you point us through your word this morning to trust Jesus even more? And Lord, we ask these things in, in Christ's name, our great intercessor who stands between us and you. And we ask in his name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So um, this is really a cool section of Luke that we're going through. There are so many great and memorable parables that are going on here. Last week, it was uh, uh, the parable about prayer, um, how to pray and not give up hope. This week, it's another famous one, the parable of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray. And then next week, it's the rich young ruler. And there, so there's just these wonderful parables, and I'm just delighted that I get to preach them, that we get to spend some time in them. Um, one of the dangers, though, is they can feel very familiar, and you think you know what they mean. So uh, I don't want to, If by the way, if I come up with something new, I get scared. <laughs> it's like, I shouldn't come up with new innovative theology. This should be straight out of what the Bible has to say. But what the task is, is trying to present it in a way that reminds us again and, and presents it to us afresh. And so this morning... It's just like last week. Remember last week he started out, Luke started by saying, he told them a parable of the fact that they ought to pray always and not lose heart. So guess what that parable was about? Praying always and not losing heart. So this week we get a similar kind of introduction. He does a similar thing. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now it says he told this parable to some. I don't believe for a second that Jesus went through the crowd and went, you come with me, you come with me, you come with me. I got a parable to tell you. Um, I think what he's saying is he told this parable to the crowd and it was supposed to apply to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So it's there for us. Luke wrote it down for us. We need to hear this parable too. Why is that? We're, we're good Protestant Reformed Christians, we believe that we are not righteous. We trust in Jesus' righteousness. Why do we need to hear this parable? Because sometimes we don't. It's really easy to slide into 
performance-based relationship with God. And so that's why Luke tells us in his book that's trying to teach us to be a better disciple, he tells us, he reminds us, don't trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. So that's the title of the sermon is do not trust yourself. That, that's the message that Jesus has for us. Trust in something else. And he does it by painting this picture of these two different men. So let's take a look at this, and, and we'll go through, we'll look at each man and kind of understand and unpack him a little bit, and then get to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. So he says, he told them a parable to, the, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, um, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. This is a good and a right thing to do. This is exactly what they should be doing. They should be going up to the temple to pray. In Isaiah 56, God said, this is my house of prayer. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he said, if your people pray to you at this house, so that's what the temple was supposed to be there for, was prayer. So we get two men doing exactly the right thing. They're going to the temple, and they're going to pray. That's good. So they go up. One is a Pharisee, and one is a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. So he, he, when we think of Pharisees, we think of hypocrites, busybodies, legalists, these, these niggly kind of nasty people. You have to remember in the first century, the Pharisees were the heroes. Pharisees were the orthodox believers. They struggled. They worked really hard to understand God's law and to apply it to every aspect of life. The common man on the street looked at the Pharisee and said, that's a godly person. And so we read this and we automatically assume the Pharisee is the enemy because we've been through the Gospels and we know what happens. But you have to read it in the context that he's, he's speaking it. So they look at this Pharisee and they go, this must be the good guy in this story. Because the tax collector, we know they're bad people. But this Pharisee must be the good guy. And so he goes in and he prays, and a lot of what he says is spot on, theologically sound. He goes in to pray. It says that he stood by himself. Since the, Pharisee, or since the tax collector says he stood afar off, this seems to indicate that the Pharisee moved himself towards the front. So you can picture him coming into the temple. He comes into the temple courts and he passes through the, the court of the Gentiles where everybody was allowed to come. And then he passes through the court of the women where the women were allowed to come. And he comes into the court of the men, which is the inner court. The next step in is you have to be a priest. So he gets as close as he can. He's standing towards the front, and he prays. And listen to his prayer. There's some good stuff here. He says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. Theologically, that's pretty good prayer. When we don't sin, when we're not tempted to the same sins that surround us, when we, when we overcome those sins, it's a good idea to pray to God and say, Lord, I thank you that I fought that sin off. I thank you that I'm not tempted in that way. You're acknowledging, hey, this isn't just me trying really hard to do it myself. You're looking to God and you're saying, Lord, the only reason I've overcome that sin is because of your grace. I thank you for that. Now, we, we look at the Pharisees and we tend to think that the Pharisees thought they were saved by works. The Pharisees thought they were saved by being Jews. They believed that they were born into the covenant, that they were saved just by their nationality. They believed that they remained saved, they stayed within the covenant by works, by doing these good things. So he's looking at this, he's not saying, Lord, thank you for saving me by this. He said, thank you that you keep me safe in the covenant, 
by keeping me away from these sins. So far, this guy's pretty good. He's, he's doing a pretty good theologically spot-on kind of uh, prayer. He's praying to God. He's thanking for God his, for his lack of sinfulness. The problem is, the problem is he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Even this tax collector. He's looking and saying, Lord, because of these things that I've received, because of these tremendous gifts that I have, I am a Jew. And, and there was a prayer that the rabbis had at that time that, that thanked God that they were Jewish and that they were not female because they said that was just this blessed position to be in. So he's looking at this. He's saying, Lord, you've given me all of these rich blessings. I thank you for that. And then instead of looking to God and saying, it's all your grace, all your mercy, he says, because I'm better than this guy, <laughs> this tax collector. I, hey, I'm not like him. I'm better than that. And then he recounts what he's done. I, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of everything I take in. At this point, he is now holier than God. Because what he's done is he said, I, I fast twice a week. God didn't tell you fast twice a week. He's saying, Lord, you've given me these rules. I've gone above and beyond. That's who I am. And so this is, this is the guy who is, he starts out so good. He's got so many right things, and then he falls off the cliff. He's comparing himself to others. And then Jesus swings the camera over, and he looks to the back of the sanctuary, to the back of that area, and he sees the tax collector. And all the tax collector can say is, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. He stands there beating his breast, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, he won't even look up. He is so in, he's in the presence of God, in the presence of his holiness. The temple is this picture of God's presence amongst his people. And what does this man do? He stands as far off as he can, and he beats his breast, a sign of contrition, saying, oh, I'm so terrible. And his words are, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the tax collectors at the day, they were the worst of the worst, right? They were, they were as bad as you could possibly get. It would be like somebody from America defecting to ISIS and attacking American troops. That would be the kind of traitorous person that we would see the tax collector as. So that's, that's who he's looking at. And these are the two pictures that are painted before us. I want to take a little diversion here for a second before we begin to unpack this. I said that what the tax collector or what the Pharisee had done was pretty good up to a point. And Jesus is going to praise the tax collector at this point and say he's done the right thing. We tend to think that people can't do good. And there's a point to that because Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's true. But a number of years ago, I came across a cartoon by this secularist, and he had a little bear with a cross on his chest at a pulpit preaching. And his, his, he said, so therefore, if you don't believe in a higher power, you can't do truly good things. And that was his point. It was, he was trying to make this point that religious people believe this. And I took offense at that. I thought, well, first of all, nobody said non-religious people can't do good things. And second of all, as a Christian, I certainly don't believe that we can do good things. <laughs> so if, if a child fell into the street and a bus was pulling up and the, the rankest secular humanist reached over and snatched that baby up and pulled it from in front of the bus, that would be a good thing to do. That was a right thing to do. 
as a society, we need to take care of each other, and we need to love and care for each other. So that's a good thing. It's not like he's incapable of doing a good thing. The problem isn't, do we do good things or do we do bad things? What Paul's point in Romans 3 is, we're all guilty of sin. All of us. Everybody is under sin. We have all sinned. So that's why he says, none is righteous. He's not saying that people do horrible things all the time or everything you do is bad. What he's saying is it's stained with sin. To some degree, in some way, we're all stained with sin. So we need to get the idea, first of all, that you can be a sinner and do a good thing. And then as a religious person, as a, as a, a believer, we have to realize that our good things aren't really that good. This is, it's, a, it's a strange balance that we have to strike. And so that's why Jesus paints these two pictures for us. He puts these two guys forward for us and he says, look at the difference. The Pharisee, objectively looking at him, he didn't commit adultery. He didn't extort people. He, he gave a tithe from everything he had. He, externally looking at the Pharisee, he goes, that's a good man. This is the kind of guy you want to have in your neighborhood. Love to have a person like that in church. You know, they're probably plugged into every ministry doing all these great things. Externally, this looks like a good person. But the tax collector, wow, they're dirty. They're damaged goods. They've compromised with the enemy. They're, they're taking more money from their fellow countrymen than they should be. I don't know that, you know, we don't want that kind of person coming to church. We might, you know, meet them at the door and say, you know, maybe you should find someplace else, right? That's because we're looking externally. We're looking at the outside. We're saying, what are you doing? What, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? The Pharisee's doing all these things right. The tax collector is doing everything wrong. What Jesus takes us to is he says, I, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector is the one who's justified. And, and the word justified means proclaimed righteous, declared to be righteous. So how is it that the tax collector was proclaimed to be righteous at this point? Because when he prayed to God, he, he, he beat his chest and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He acknowledged that he is a sinner. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to sugarcoat it. He didn't try to explain any of it away. Hey, guy's got to make a living. He simply came to God and acknowledged, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word that he used for be merciful is the same word used to describe the mercy seat. In the temple, in the, when they built the temple, they built the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark, they put the Ten Commandments, and on the top, they put a lid, a golden lid, that was specially designed by God, and God would meet them there. So in Exodus 30, or 26, rather, this is how he describes it. He's telling Moses what to do in, in Exodus 26, 21. He says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Then I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the, the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandments for the people of Israel. What, the, what the, the tax collector said is, Lord, I'm looking forward to that mercy seat where you promised you would meet with your people. Moses, when he sanctified, when he, when he dedicated the temple, he threw blood on everything. There was blood shed 
so that this mercy seat would be considered holy, so that it would be holy before God, so that God could appear in his Shekinah glory, his presence glory could appear above that mercy seat and be in the midst of the people. And that's what the tax collector is counting on. He's looking, he's saying, Lord, that's what I want. I want you to be merciful to me. I want you to extend to me mercy, not just wink at my sin and go, yeah, it's no big deal. I want you to take it away. That's what he's banking on. That's why he can go and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I acknowledge that. And I'm counting on the mercy that's present above the, the testimony to take my sin away. What is the, the Pharisee counting on? He's counting he's done it all. Look, Lord, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I've checked all of these boxes. I've got all these things nailed down. Therefore, hear my prayer. I've done, I've met my requirements. Why then would he look and say, well, at least I'm not like this guy. If you're trusting in yourself, that's, remember that's how he addressed it. This is parable who trusted in themselves. If you're trusting in yourself to be righteous before God, if you're trusting in yourself to have that right relationship with God, what that means is you cover all the bases, you get all the things lined up, you get all the duties done, and people are an interference to you. They might mess you up. They might trip you up. They might be dirty while you're trying to be clean. So people are really an interference because I'm counting on myself. I'm counting on myself being clean here. So imagine a track meet. This, this guy's going to go out and run this track meet. It's all about him. He's going to win this gold medal. God is there as his coach. He's painted the lines on the track. He, tells him how to run, what steps to take. God's just kind of watching and going, man, I hope you make it. The crowd should be there to cheer him on. Your role is to be amazed at my athletic prowess. If the crowd wanders onto the track, you're interfering with my goal. You're getting in the way. Stay off my track. Get out of the way. I'm making this race. It's all up to me. So you can view people as an interference, as, as a nuisance, as a possibility to trip you up. How does the, the tax collector approach this? He says, I can't even run the race. I, I am a sinful man. Lord, would you give me the, the gold medal anyway? Would you do what it takes for me to get the gold medal? And so he starts down the track with no anticipation that he is suitable to get there anyway. And so when people join him on the track, when people wander on the track with him, he doesn't say, get out of my way, go away. He says, oh, you've got to come with me. <laughs> Watch where we're going to go. Would you, would you join me? Come on, walk with me as we go. When you're not trusting in yourself, when you're trusting in something else, that's a joy you want to share. That's something that you want to invite people into. Would you join me on this journey? Because it's not about me and my abilities. It's not you're there to cheer me on and tell me what a great job I'm doing. So when we have a righteousness, when we have this de being declared right, being declared good, that's based on what I've done, it automatically puts you at odds with other people. You either judge them, I overcame that sin, what's your problem? Or they're a hindrance to you. I, you know, I'm doing my Bible study. I can't talk with you right now. Can I just get my Bible study done? I've got to check this box. You're a nuisance to me. That's what self-righteousness does. That's why Jesus looks at this man and he said, the tax collector is the one who went to his house justified, declared righteous, proclaimed to be right, because he laid his hope not on what he was about to do, 
but he laid his hope on God, that God would meet him at the mercy seat, would extend mercy to him. Now, this is before Jesus has died and raised again. This is how he presented the picture of what he means for us in the gospel. The gospel for us is Jesus died to take your sins away. That's what the mercy seat was for. Once a year, the priest would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that the sins of Israel that they didn't even know they had done would be propitiated. They'd be taken away. So Jesus says, look, that's the picture that you have at this moment in time. The reality is I have come. I am going to shed my blood. My blood will take your sins away, will propitiate your sins, will we'll get rid of them. And so that's what you need to hope in now. So at the time, he preached the gospel with the image that God had left for him. After his resurrection, we hear Paul repeatedly saying, we're not justified by works. We're not. That's not how it, how it happens. So when Jesus looks at him and says, this man went down to his house justified, this sinner went down to his house. Now, does that mean he, kept, he continued sinning? Does it mean he just went, oh, you know, check that one off. I'm covered. Blood of Jesus. Amen. Now back to business. Pay up. That's not the kind of person who has actually trusted in God. The kind of person who trusted in God is now freed to run that race. Not because they expect the gold at the end when they make it on their own power, but because they've been assured, make it to the end and I will give you the medal. You will receive the medal. I promise. I ran the race for you. So this man goes down to his house justified. He goes down to his house and finds a new line of work or stops extorting money from people. That's powered by the idea that I have been forgiven. It's not powered by the, the idea I have to do these things in order to be forgiven. That, that leads to slavery. This man is set free because of the mercy seat, because Jesus has come to him in that. And so he goes down to his house justified. And then Jesus ends, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, I've said it before, it bears repeating. When we think of humble, we think of somebody who's demure and deferential and, oh, I don't know, where do you want to eat? And, you know, I'll do what you want. Um, that can be a, a manipulation, too. What biblical humility looks like is exactly what we've seen in this picture. These two men go into the temple. One exalts himself and says, hey, I don't do those things. And the one who comes in and is honest before God and says, look, Lord, I understand how you see me. I am a sinner. I recognize that. That's the one who's exalted. To be humble in a Christian sense of humility is not to defer to everybody around you and be a doormat. It is to see yourself before God as you truly are. To recognize that I stand before God a condemned sinner and I am forgiven only by the mercy of Jesus Christ. That is true biblical humility. That's why Moses could be called the most humble man in the world and beat the daylights out of Israel when they build a golden calf. It's not because he demurred to them and, and went, oh, you know, they, I'm sure they meant well. He, he got angry at them because he saw his relationship before God. He saw the people's relationship before God. He saw God's holiness. He said, this isn't going to stand. That's why Jesus could be, be said to be humble. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. And yet when he came into the temple, he overturned money-changing tables, took a belt, and beat people with it. That's a humble man because he saw the right relationship between God and his people and how it was now being abused by these money changers, by selling stuff in the temple courts. 
So that's what it means to be humbled. So Jesus tells us this parable leads us to this point of you need to be humble. And humility is to say, Lord, I recognize my position before you. I understand where I am before you. None is righteous. No, not one. I don't understand. I don't seek after God. I have turned aside. Together, I have become worthless with other people. I don't do good. Not even me. But I'm not counting on that, Lord. I'm counting on your righteousness, and therefore I'll walk in your ways. So that's what it means to be biblically humble. Now, the next section, which is the this, this story of them bringing babies to Jesus, it's really a great bridge between the parable we've just read and the next one, which is the rich young ruler who's trusting in his riches. So I could have preached it next week or I could have preached it this week. Since this week was short, I stuck it on this one. I'll probably touch on it next week. So here's what's going on. So as Jesus is telling these, these people who trusted in themselves, no, really, you stink. <laughs> really, you do. And, and to be acceptable to God, you need to humble yourself and recognize your position before God. While that's going on, people are bringing babies to him. The word there for infants, it really does mean it's small, small children, like probably toddlers and below. And so they're bringing these babies, these small children to Jesus. Say, just touch him. Just, just touch her. And we just want the blessing on the child. And so the disciples are going, you know, this is really interfering with our program, Jesus. Uh, we've got your teaching thing happening, and, and people are interrupting with these babies. Get the babies out of here. So they start rebuking people. Hey, bring them back later, or see us on the road, or make an appointment. We'll put you on our calendar or something. And they, they want them to go away. It seems like it's, it's a, a nuisance. Doesn't that sound familiar? When you're seeking your own righteousness, people are an interference. They are a bother. When you're made righteous because of what God's done, they're not a bother. And so Jesus looks and he says, he says, don't hinder the children. Don't stop them. Let, them let the children come to me and, hinder, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. So what he means by this is bring those children. Bring your children in because they are the perfect example of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. He says, to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. It's this picture of, of childlike faith. And he says, no, I don't, don't exclude them. Now, some people use this section to justify baptizing babies. Anybody see baptism? In, I don't even see water in here anywhere. So I don't think that's, that's the place to justify baptizing infants. There are other scriptures, go there. This is not a good one. Um, because we don't baptize babies, but we have children's ministry. We want children to come, and we want to teach them more about Jesus. We don't hinder them. We don't tell you, leave your kids at home, uh, find a babysitter. We have a, you know, a playroom you can go play in. We, we bring the children. We say, children, come to children's church. Learn about Jesus. We don't hinder them. We don't baptize them, but we don't hinder them either. So what Jesus is getting at here is he says in verse 17, Truly I say to you, who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what does that mean? This, these two stories collided in my head while I was doing sermon prep. When I was little, I mean really little, I discovered this amazing fact. There were other children in my neighborhood. I had no idea. I knew my cousins, but I had no idea there were kids up the street. And I was so excited to meet these other children. I remember coming to my mom and saying, Mom, there are kids up the street. And she's like, yes, Timmy. <laughs> 
you know, kind of okay. That, I was so excited. I thought these kids are going to be so much fun. We're going to do great things together. And, and it was just such an excitement. And, and I had that same kind of feeling when I became a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, I had been reading the Bible by myself. Lisa was back here in the States. I was living in England. Um, she, she would come back in another couple weeks. She was visiting friends. And I was reading the Bible, and it dawned on me, wait, this is true. This Jesus is a real person. And so I called Lisa. I said, guess what? I'm going to Mass on Sunday. It's going to be great. I'm going to see people who are just as excited about God as I am. This is going to be so cool. It was that same infantile exuberance, this idea that, hey, there are others out there. It was almost naive because the neighborhood kids, I was the youngest, so I tended to get pushed around. A couple of the kids beat me up on a fairly regular basis. It wasn't the joyous moment I thought it was going to be. And when I went to Mass and I came in, I was like, this is so great. People are going to be so excited about Jesus. People are coming in late, leaving early. The priest is checking his watch during the thing because there's a football game on. I was like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I thought everybody would come here and be excited about meeting God. That's what he's getting at is that, that naive almost anticipation, that trust, that looking forward to great things. That's how you receive the kingdom. As you say, Lord, you've promised me this kingdom. This is the promise that you've made to me. It's coming. And I am like an infant. I just can't wait to see that thing. It's going to be great. I won't be let down like I was when I met the neighborhood kids and they punched me. I won't be let down when the people at church are, are falling asleep in the pew next to me and I'm just like a buzz because we're talking about Jesus. The kingdom doesn't do that. The kingdom comes and it receive it with that infantile, naive expectation of greatness. This is going to be wonderful. That's what Jesus says here. So he looks at the, the Pharisee, and the Pharisee's got the rules set up. He's got everything lined up. I'm giving. I'm doing this. I'm fasting on Monday and Wednesday because those are the holy days. Where's that in the Bible? That's not receiving the kingdom like a child. That's receiving the kingdom like it is commerce. I have paid these things, and you will give me the kingdom, and we will be great. So let's be happy with that, God. The, the tax collector, however, he's receiving the kingdom like a child. He's coming and saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, the way that's worded in the Greek, it's be merciful to me, the sinner. He recognizes his standing amongst all the other people. and he's, he's, I don't think he's saying I'm worse than all of them. What he's saying is, out of all of these people, Lord, I recognize I am the sinner in the room. If, if there's problems here, it's my fault. I am the one who's guilty. And so he's coming to the kingdom not asking for great things, not expecting what he's owed. He's coming and he's asking for mercy. Lord, would you please extend that to me? And so Jesus picks up this child and he says, do this. Be this excited about coming into the kingdom. Be this naive about what you're about to expect. Don't come in expecting things that are your due. Watch what I lavish on you. That's why he holds up a child and says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Is we have to have that childlike anticipation of what God's about to do. Looking forward to all his greatness, all his mercy, all his love that he's about to pour out on us. You can just picture these little kids climbing up into Jesus' lap, pulling on his robes as they're trying to get up into his lap, and he's kind of, okay, come on up. And just loving on them. And that's what he's calling us to do. He's saying, I, I promise I will do the same thing for you. Come to me empty-handed, and I will give you lavishly my love, my care, my attention. 
So that's the picture of coming into the kingdom. And the reason that Luke writes this for us, not just those who trust in themselves, is because we can drift in that direction. We can accidentally start heading towards that, Lord, I have done these things. Why is this not happening for me now? I've fulfilled my requirements. And we are far too sophisticated to ever say those words. We would never admit that publicly, but it creeps up in our heart. And so the image that I want you to take away from this is is if you ever start having that performance-based relationship feeling with God, you know what, I've had a great week and I've done Bible study and I've witnessed and I went to this and I did that and look what I'm doing for the church and I'm having a great week. It must be because I'm such a great guy. Picture that baby climbing up Jesus' robes trying to get to him and and Jesus saying, I will give you the kingdom of God. That's how you fight that temptation towards performance-based relationship with God. Is he's given you an infant, he's given you a picture in this infant, in this baby. To the kingdom of God belongs such as these. This is how you come to me. Don't come with your list of everything you've done. Come to me expecting, and I will provide every, I will give you the kingdom of God. That's what it means to trust in somebody else. Don't trust in yourself. Do not trust yourself. Be extraordinarily suspicious of yourself, especially, most notably, when you're having a great week. That's when you really need to be on your toes. I have had the most dynamite week. I have hit Bible study every time. I get this, just wonderful. What's, what's wrong? <laughs> what, what's going to happen? Don't trust yourself. When you, when you have a stretch where this nagging sin that has been bothering you for a while, I, I can't help but every once in a while the lie pops out, or I can't help every once in a while I just cut this person down. Or whatever that sin is, every time that comes up and you've had a week or two where you've got, I have, I have escaped that. I've seen that thing coming and I've sidestepped it. It's been a great week. Be careful. Don't trust yourself. The Pharisee said, Lord, I am thankful that I do not do these things. He didn't go home justified. So when those things happen, when you have that great week, don't forget to thank God for that. Lord, I'm incapable of it. I, I don't do righteous. Or I don't do righteousness. I don't don't trust myself. Lord, I'm looking to you. And thank you for your goodness to me despite what I've done. And let that be that humility, that right standing between you and God saying, this is how I'm evaluating myself. What the scripture says is true. I don't seek him. I, I don't want after, I don't seek after the kingdom, but he's given it to me anyway because I'm, I'm coming as a child. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us that gift? Please give us that gift. Please. Remind us on a regular basis. When we see a child in the grocery store, when a grandchild sits on our knee, when we look at pictures from when we were kids, Lord, would you remind us that to the kingdom of God belongs these. Or these belong, the the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And Lord, help us to maintain that childlike expectation of who you are. Free us from performance-based relationship. And remind us that the mercy seat sits before us, the real, live, living mercy seat that's ascended into heaven and pleads on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would trust, not in ourselves, but trust in you. Lord, I pray that we would trust not in our performance on a moment-by-moment basis, but, Lord, on the mercy seat that you've established in the middle of the earth, Jesus' blood and his his death, his, his burial, his resurrection, on our behalf. And Lord, we can boast in nothing else, any of the good works that we do, and we have been 
given good works from the foundation of the world to, to walk in. None of those good works are boastworthy because they're only gifts from you. So Lord, help us remember to boast in what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us to cling to your robes, to climb into your lap, to trust you that you have made us worthy. Lord, be merciful to us, sinners. <laughs>